Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pause to pray yet again because we need your help yet again. Especially, Lord, as we undertake together as a community to open your word and to understand it, to handle it rightly, and not just to to understand it and know it, but to see it and savor it and treasure it and be so affected by it, Lord, that our lives change. We don't change very often. When we do change, it's a miracle. You've been at work. And so I, I pray, Lord, that you would grant us the gift of your spirit, not only to see what's here, but to be so moved by it that we become a different sort of people as we leave the sanctuary today. We thank you for Jesus, who uh, is supremely our substitute on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for our sin, absorbing the white-hot penalty that we deserve, the anger of your righteous wrath against our sin that we deserve. We, we see him as our substitute, and yet in this passage, he's, he's just as much our example. He is a model for us of what it looks like to engage those in at-risk situations. So come and help us to be a a congregation like this, and may this sermon be a a pebble that we drop in the water, and may the ripple effects go on and on and on into the days ahead and into this season. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. If you'd like to use one of the red Bibles from underneath the seat in front of you, uh, today's sermon text can be found starting on page 873. Page 873 in the red Bibles. Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. A number of years ago, uh, the late preacher John Stott wrote these powerful and perceptive words. He said, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. Isn't that true? At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. During Lent of 2017, it was our privilege as a church to study what have become known as the seven deadly sins. And as you may know, the first sin that that heads this list is, is pride. And if you were here for that series, perhaps you recall that pride is at the head of the list, not simply because it's one of the seven deadly sins. It turns out that pride is actually the soil in which the seeds of all the other six grow. Pride creates the environment in which envy and sinful anger and sloth and greed and gluttony and lust and so on tend to flourish. That's why it's so mission critical that throughout our lives we learn how to hate and to hunt our pride. If we can deliver our pride fresh wounds every day, we will at the same time be attacking, attacking and weakening every other indwelling sin. Remember that pride is simply thinking much of ourselves and about ourselves. That's what pride is. Thinking much of ourselves and about ourselves. And 
When put that way, it's clear that whether we love ourselves or we loathe ourselves, either way, the common denominator is what? Self. These two realities, pride and humility, cannot bear rule in the same heart at the same time. That's impossible. That's why if we want to be about the business of putting pride to death, we can't just focus on putting our pride to death. So where humility suffers, pride thrives. Where humility thrives, pride suffers. Um, We can't just focus on putting our pride to death. That would be like trying to stop thinking about purple elephants by telling yourself to stop thinking about purple elephants, right? Stop thinking about purple elephants, stop thinking about purple elephants. It doesn't work that way. Instead, we need to look another place entirely. Another way to come at this is to define humility, and and perhaps you've heard it defined this way. It's interesting. C.S. Lewis is actually credited with this phrase, but from what I can learn, this actually comes from the pen of Rick Warren, interestingly. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. That's good. That's a good start. If pride is thinking much of myself and about myself, then the pursuit of humility must be the reverse of that. Humility must be learning how to get my heart up and locked onto God and then moving out toward other people in joyful service. Humility is what happens when you're busy forgetting about yourself and worshiping God and joyfully serving others. That's humility. So I think if I could boil this morning's text down to a single sentence, it would, it would be this. God ordains that we kill our pride by cultivating humility and by serving others in humble circumstances. And I think we could even tweak that a bit the more I've thought about it. If, if I could take one more swing at this morning's big idea before it went to print, I'd put it this way. God ordains that we kill our pride by cultivating humility as we serve others in humble circumstances, which, which is to say that serving others in humble circumstances, that's not like an additional activity uh, alongside cultivating humility. Rather, it is the very means by which we cultivate humility. Does that make sense to everyone? God ordains that we kill our pride by cultivating humility as we serve others in humble circumstances. And just so we're clear, there is a difference between humility and humble circumstances. Uh, It's not always the case that where there's smoke, there's fire. Uh, Humble circumstances are designed to humble us, but there's not always a one-to-one correlation between the two. Uh, Sir Winston Churchill once memorably spoke of these two realities when he was questioned by a political opponent of his named Clement Attlee. Uh, Churchill had launched into one of his famous talks and one of his friends interrupted him in mid-sentence and he said, but surely, Mr. Churchill, you admit that Mr. Attlee is a humble man. To which Churchill replied, he is a humble man and he has much to be humble about, right? So we've got humility and then we've got humble circumstances. And God ordains that we kill our pride by cultivating humility as we serve others in humble circumstances that are designed to humble both us and those in those circumstances. So this morning we have, we just have one, this one broad directive, this one big idea, and then three distinct motives, and each of them are drawn out of this text that's in front of us. So let's, let's get to it. This morning we have this one big idea and three motives. God ordains that we kill our pride by cultivating humility as we serve others in humble circumstances. So walk humbly by living with compassion toward the vulnerable. That's the key here. You're going to hear that word over and over again. By living with compassion toward the vulnerable. Because, number one, it's the way of the Lord. That's the first reason. Walk humbly 
living with compassion toward the vulnerable because it's the way of the Lord. It was all over Philippians 2 that that Andrew read for us just moments ago. We're going to see it in full color here. Would you follow along with me as we read Luke 14, 1 to 6? One Sabbath, when he, Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox, has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So walk humbly, living with compassion toward the vulnerable, number one, because it's the way of the Lord. We read in verse 1 that one Sabbath, Jesus went to dine at a house of the ruler, of a ruler of the Pharisees. Now, perhaps it's a bit of hyperbole, but I read somewhere that as, as you look at the trajectory of the Gospel of Luke, straight across Luke's Gospel, as you track the life of the Lord Jesus, that Jesus is either leaving or present at or heading to a meal. Did you know that? As you read through Luke's Gospel, and perhaps the same may be said of our lives as well, I suppose. Now, if that's an exaggeration, it's only an exaggeration by a little bit. I mean, think about it. Jesus ate with Matthew and the tax collectors in Luke 5. He presumably ate with his disciples as they were eating grain in the fields in, on the Sabbath in chapter 6. He ate at the home of Simon the Pharisee in chapter 7. He fed the 5,000 in chapter 9. I suppose he took hold of that meal as well as they ate. He stopped by Mary and Martha's place in Bethany for a meal in chapter 10. He dined with an unnamed Pharisee in chapter 11. Later on, he'll go home to be the guest of Zacchaeus in chapter 19. And it doesn't say that there was a meal there, but I I think it's fair to say, given Jesus' track record, he probably ate, ate something there too. And then, of course, we have the Passover meal, the Last Supper in Luke 22. We know that he ate there. And then finally, after his resurrection, he's not done yet, in, in chapter 24, um, we see him sit down for a meal with the two men from the, the Emmaus Road. The Gospel of Luke is loaded with these sorts of accounts. And that's just Luke's Gospel. Imagine if we stirred in the alternate accounts in Matthew and Mark and in John. So much so that when Jesus says in Luke 7.34, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, like, we believe him. This was a big part of his life. As we know, in the first century, particularly in the ancient Near East, to share a meal was to share a life. So Jesus wasn't just eating. Jesus was sharing his life with people. He was opening his soul to people and to all sorts of people. And in this case, in verse 1, this is the third time in Luke's Gospel we see him sit down with the Pharisees. So verse 1 also makes it clear that they were watching him carefully. You see that there in verse 1? One Sabbath, Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, and they were watching him carefully. And if you were to track the development of Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees over the cross of Luke's gospel, you would know at this point that Jesus and the Pharisees are not exactly on the best of terms. Uh, this, this relationship isn't developing so much as it's disintegrating. Well, this meal isn't the first he's had with the Pharisees. It will prove to be his last with them, interestingly. Thinking through the flow of the first six verses, it's entirely possible that this is a setup from the very beginning. 
In fact, that phrase, they were watching him carefully, uh, helps me think that way. Uh, One New Testament commentator put it this way, observing that they were watching him carefully really means they were watching him lurkingly. I think that's right. They were watching every single move that Jesus was making in the hopes of somehow publicly disgracing him. So now in verse 2, Luke doesn't come right out and say it, but the more I read this account, it sounds to me like a setup all the way. Look at verse 2. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now it's a Sabbath day. And again, if you think back over Luke's gospel, Jesus has already raised the eyebrows of the Pharisees on at least two different occasions by, by healing people on the Sabbath, twice before. And here we are again on the Sabbath. And a man with dropsy just happens to show up. Now, I, I had to do a little bit of research. I don't know if you know anything about dropsy. I, I sure don't. I do now, I suppose. Um, dropsy is an old-timey medical term for the, the swelling of soft tissue underneath the skin. It basically amounts to, a, to excess water in the body. We call it edema today. The Middle English term dropsy is a shortened version of the French word hydropsy, which comes from the Greek term hydros, which is water. That's why the term dropsy is is used. This man had dropsy. And I suspect that the Pharisees invited him. They invited him because for Jesus, this guy was low-hanging fruit. The same men that the Pharisees used is the same man that Jesus loved. We know that because of what we read in verses 3 and 4. And notice that in verse 3, it says that Jesus responded to these guys. Interesting, in the text, they haven't said anything yet. (laughs) Daryl Bach is right on the money with his observation that, quote, Luke says that Jesus replied, indicating that he is in dialogue with their suspicion. Did you catch that? Jesus isn't just reading their minds. Jesus is reading their cynicism. Does that make you feel uncomfortable? What Jesus knows about you? So we read in verse 3, Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent and then he took him and healed him and he sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now we've seen, obviously, we've said the similar interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees in Luke's gospel to this point. And like I mentioned several weeks back when preaching about the woman with a disabling spirit in chapter 13, if you want to do a deep dive into all the issues relative to Sabbath and and should Christians observe the Sabbath and what does that look like, we did a sermon back in Luke chapter 6 about a year ago on our website at moundfree.org. You can check that out. I want to bypass that theme just to drill down on the topic at hand, and that would be the relationship of Jesus toward those who are vulnerable. That's the theme here in this passage and in the next couple of paragraphs. And just so we're clear, Jesus is absolutely riveted on this man, isn't he? From the moment Luke sets the scene, we're going to learn in pretty short order here that while the Pharisees are all rushing toward the seats of honor, Jesus sees this man, this man with this disabling condition, and he's drawn into this man's orbit. And while the Jewish leaders use this diseased man like bait, Jesus loves this diseased man like a brother. They marginalize him. Jesus heals him. You get the sense that this healing took place like straight out of the gate. I I don't even think Jesus had gotten seated yet before he began to go to work. Both the empathy as well as the urgency is felt in Jesus' words to the Pharisees in verse 5, isn't it? Which of you having a son 
or even so much as an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. You just get the sense that Jesus healed him right away as soon as he walked in. And I think the implication here is, of course, that any of the Pharisees would have grabbed their their son or their, their ox out of the well on the Sabbath day. And that's what Jesus does because that's who Jesus is. He walks humbly, living with compassion toward the vulnerable. As it says in the first of our our study questions, in the community group study guide, Article 8 of the EFCA Statement of Faith affirms that we we believe as a church body in acting with compassion toward the poor. That's written right into our Statement of Faith. Acting with compassion toward the poor. Now, in the book Evangelical Convictions, which is the official exposition of the Free Church Statement of Faith, uh, the authors are very clear to define the poor as, quote, any who are needy, powerless, vulnerable, such as widows, orphans, the elderly, the disabled, the unborn, the immigrant, the minority, or the mistreated. In other words, this man qualifies, and Jesus can't help himself. Now, Jesus is perfectly humble. In the depth of his deepest desires, he is a flawlessly humble human being, He's always got his heart up and riveted on his father and moving, it's working outward toward other people. That's humility. Jesus is our model because he has it in spades. That's why we worship him. And though he has no pride to kill, you can see where we're headed with this, God ordains that we kill our pride by cultivating humility as we serve others in humble circumstances. If these six verses show us anything, they serve to show us what it looks like to live with compassion toward the vulnerable because it's, it's the way of the Lord. It's how Jesus operated consistently. Now, the second point today is going to begin to bring this home in terms of personal application. So let's go ahead and just move to point number two and we'll advance in our text a little bit. So let's wrap this first point up. God ordains that we kill our pride by cultivating humility as we serve others in humble circumstances. So walk humbly, living with compassion toward the vulnerable. Secondly, walk humbly, living with compassion toward the vulnerable, not simply because it's something that the Lord exhibits in his own life, but because it's a command of the Lord. Walk humbly by living with compassion toward the poor because it's command of the Lord. Jesus doesn't just model this. He mandates it for us. Look at the text starting in chapter 14, verses 7 to 14. Luke's Gospel 14, 7 to 14. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you, like me, come to the feast. And you're invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, 
the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So walk humbly by living with compassion toward the vulnerable because it's a command of the Lord. Twice in these two paragraphs, Jesus issues a full-on, no-holds-barred command. And each of these two commands are means by which we are to develop humility. So verse 10, when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. That's the first one. And then number th- verse 13, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. So let's, let's take each in turn. Each one of these is, is worth spending some time in. The first command simply tumbles out of the scene in which Jesus finds himself, right? Verse 7, Luke writes that, now he told a parable, this parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Now in the first century, the places of honor would have been to the immediate right and the immediate left hand of the host and in that order. That's precisely what James and John appeal to Jesus for in Mark chapter 10, verse 37. Do you remember that? Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now that may sound strange to our ears, but it ought not to. We do this sort of thing all the time. Six-year-olds scrambling at a birthday party for the spot closest to the birthday boy or girl, Right? Middle schoolers do this in the cafeteria during lunch, jockeying for position next to their friends or to the popular kid. And you'd like to think that we sort of grow out of this, but I'm afraid it only gets worse the older we get. I read a handful of articles this past week all discussing what they call the power seat in a room. You know what that is? Power seat? One article I read was entitled, Where Do You Sit in a Meeting? The Four Power Positions. You know about this? Even if you don't know about this, you might know this intuitively as you walk into a meeting room. In our culture, whether in a boardroom or in a kitchen, the seat at the head of the table is the power seat. So imagine a rectangular table. That's the power seat. Now the second most powerful seat would be the counterbalance to that seat, the one on the opposite side of the table. So if you can't grab this one, by all means, at least take this one so you'll be in charge. And if you can't manage either one of these, then flank one of the power seats, either the first power seat or the counterbalance power seat. And at a distant fourth, you have what's called the middle few. At a rectangular table, you're in the middle few. You're you're completely out of sight. Uh, You're talked over probably during the meeting. Now granted, a circular table would serve to reduce the problem here. But I think we can probably all agree that the shape of the table or the amount of types of furniture in a room isn't the heart of the matter. You've been a part of our church for any length of time. You know what the heart of the matter is. The heart of the matter is that our hearts are the matter. The heart is the matter. And these guys in verses 7 to 11 have naughty, naughty hearts. And Jesus knows it. He sees it. He watches these grown men stumbling over each other like first graders to snag the seats of greatest honor. So what's the command in this case? It's in verse 10. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. 
Now, if you just want to be blessed by way of application and you don't know this song, go home to iTunes and download Mahalia Jackson's Move On Up a Little Higher. It will stir you like it stirred me all week. It doesn't have a whole lot to do with this passage, but it really encouraged me. It was my soundtrack preparing this sermon, Move On Up a Little Higher by Mahalia Jackson. She drew it right from this verse. You will be honored in the presence of all if you go to sit at the lowest seat and he calls you to move on up a little higher. Translation, don't take the power seat. Find the wimpy seat in the room. Find the unimportant seat, the, un, the inconsequential seat, and sit there. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God because it says in verse 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. So you know what this looks like perhaps in just a few minutes in Fellowship Hall as the benediction is given and we begin to scatter. Don't just mindlessly gravitate towards your family or towards your friends. Take a moment, take even a few moments and look out for visitors and get to know them. Talk to someone totally unlike you. Talk to somebody much younger than you or much older than you. Someone of a different ethnicity someone with a, a physical disability, someone who looks to you like they have no idea how they got here and they can't wait to leave. Make them feel at home. As to the second command we find in verse 13, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, we might be inclined to ask, shouldn't we like spiritualize this text? You know, the spiritually lame, the spiritually blind, the spiritually crippled, and so on. Well, sure, that's, that's fine. I'm on board with that. I mean, be intentional about having unbelievers over from your list of five into your home this summer. Absolutely. Just so long as we don't negate the plain sense and force of this passage. When Jesus commands us in verse 13 to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, just be sure not to leave out the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. When I read this, I I don't get the sense that Jesus is somehow offering an exhaustive list here. I think he's just getting started. This list is about the vulnerable in our lives, isn't it? The powerless. It's about the widow in the house down the street from you. It's about the child whose parents neglect them and you have an opportunity to build into them. It's about the elderly, those with physical disabilities. It's about the single mother, the immigrant, the minority, the mistreated. If Jesus were addressing 21st century America today, I am quite certain that he'd include in verse 13 the lonely, the depressed, and the suicidal in view of this past week especially. Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain had it all. And they had nothing. They were just as vulnerable in this world as anyone else. So pay attention. Give careful thought to those who are experiencing a significant loss. Take seriously signs of um, sadness that you see in their lives and include them in your life and your family. God ordains that we kill our pride by cultivating humility as we serve others in humble circumstances. So walk humbly, living with compassion toward the vulnerable, not just because it's the way of the Lord, but because it's a command of the Lord. Okay, one final point, then we're done. Walk humbly, living with compassion toward the vulnerable, because it's the foundation of all of your joy. Walk humbly, living with compassion toward the vulnerable because it is the foundation of all of your and our joy. Look with me once more at our passage this time, Luke 14, verses 15 to 24. 
Luke 14, starting in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to them, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all likewise began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry. And he said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done, and there's still room. The master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So walk humbly, living with compassion toward the vulnerable because it's the foundation of all your joy. Why is that the point of this particular portion of our passage? Here's why. In verse 15, this final parable is set off by something that one of the dinner guests say to Jesus, right? In verse 15, Jesus hears this comment. uh, When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus had just finished talking about the resurrection of the just. If you live this sort of way, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That gets this man thinking about the coming messianic kingdom. And so he says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is simply shifting to speak, not of how we ought to live lives of compassion in the here and now, although we ought to. He's already covered that. He now isn't talking about who will be invited and who, in point of fact, is included in the coming kingdom. As we follow the narrative of the parable, three rounds of invitations are set out, aren't they? The first round of invitations is described in verses 17 to 20. Allow me to read it one more time just so we're all on the same page. Starting in verse 17. At the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I, must, I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another rather curtly right, says to him, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. Um, recalling the context, Jesus is telling a parable about those who are to be included in the kingdom when he comes to reign on the earth. And we know from our study of Luke's gospel and simply from the context of chapter 14 just who this first group is. It's the first century Jewish leadership. Now, men like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea notwithstanding, Jesus is universally rejected by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, the lawyers and scribes and so on. And they're right here in this parable. They're represented by this first round of invitees. And they RSVP in the negative. And we learn in no uncertain terms how the master of the feast takes these blatant rejections. It says in verse 21, So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. So we've already heard Jesus speak of these people, right? Up in verse 13. 
In this case, if we're just following the flow of Jesus' thought, I think the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame here probably just refer to rank-and-file Jews, the, the remnant of the first century and possibly the remnant down through history even to this day. But then we read something curious in verse 22 where the servant says to the master, Sir, what you've commanded has been done and there's still room. And then the master says in verse 23, Go out into the highways and hedges. Compel people to come in. That my, ho- that my house may be filled. Okay, who is this? Yeah, who else could this be? This is us. We are the third group of the parable. We see the same dynamic at work back in chapter 13, verses 28 and 29, when Jesus says to the Jews of his day, in that place for you there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out, and people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. So allow me just to to underscore precisely why this is such good news for us and why it's the foundation of all our joy. Walk humbly by living with compassion toward the vulnerable because it's the foundation of all our joy. Translation, if you are a Christ follower today, remember who you were when you were called. You weren't part of the first round of invitations. Heck, we weren't even among the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. No, according to this parable, we were out in the highways and hedges. And as Paul says in Ephesians 2.12, we were separated from Christ, alienated, alienated from God and the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We weren't just vulnerable before Jesus got a hold of us. We were less than vulnerable. We were completely outside the saving grace of God in Christ. So we ought to spend our lives going like a heat-seeking missile after vulnerable people. Because apart from God's grace, that's exactly who we are. As we seek to make this the theme of our lives, the inclusion of vulnerable people into our circle, we are living out a parable of our own salvation. So walk humbly by living with compassion toward the vulnerable because you didn't seek for God. In Jesus, God came after you, sought you out, and included you. And that's why this is the foundation of all of our joy. Well, let's wrap up. God ordains that we kill our pride by cultivating humility as we serve others in humble circumstances. Look about your life. Think through your day today. Think through what the week looks outstretched in front of you. Walk humbly by walking with compassion toward the vulnerable because it's the way of the Lord, it's a command of the Lord, and it's the foundation of all of our joy. My friend David Mathis serves as one of the pastors at Cities Church here in Minneapolis. And a couple of years ago, he wrote a, a really helpful uh, brief meditation to accompany a worship song entitled All the Poor and Powerless. Um, reflecting on the beauty of the truths in that song and in our text today, David writes this. Christianity is not for the self-sufficient. It's not a religion for the rich and strong. Jesus didn't come to comfort the well-to-do and to rally those who have their lives all in order. He didn't come to gather the good but the bad. Jesus came not to call the righteous but sinners. This is one of the great paradoxes of the gospel. It is the poor he makes rich, the weak he makes strong, the foolish he makes wise, the guilty he makes righteous, the dirty he makes clean, the lonely he loves, the worthless he values, the lost he finds, and the have-nots who stunningly become the haves. Not mainly in this age but in the new creation to come. And then David concludes, he says, There is a great beauty 
to our God being the strength of the weak and the riches of the poor, it's truly good news to those of us who will acknowledge how needy we really are and how weak our hearts can be, how poor we really are in spirit. What good news it is that we have a God like this who takes the foolish and the weak and the lowly like us and makes us into trophies of his grace for his glory and for our joy. This is indeed a message worth screaming from the mountains and telling to the masses. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we see Jesus in this meal and he's doing what he always does. Constantly gravitating toward the vulnerable. I wonder, Lord, how seriously, if I think back over the last week of my life, how frequently I skillfully avoided the vulnerable because of what it would cost me, because it didn't fit my plans for the day or my schedule. I wonder, Lord, what it might look like for our church just in our own body if we just, we just, we just by your grace, begin to look around this sanctuary and see um, how many people that we can be deliberately moving to, like Jesus moved to this man with dropsy all these years ago. Lord, grant that we would act out this parable of our own salvation. This isn't, um, Lord, simply charity. This is reality. (laughs) This is who we are. You have moved toward us out in the highways and hedges. If we know Jesus, you have crossed heaven, really, to get a hold of us. And so I pray, Father, that we would be this week, this season, into the days ahead in the life of this church, ready to reach out to those who are vulnerable. There's so many different ways to do this. Help us to think creatively about vulnerability and grant that we as a church would include all of the poor and powerless into this fellowship so that as we are weak, we and more importantly, the West Tonka community and and all those around us would see a powerful God in Christ resting on this fellowship. For the sake of our mission to be and make disciples, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.